Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your Son. Thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. And thank you that you are our King. Christ is our King forevermore. Lord, we pray now that we would submit our hearts to your authority under your word and help us to hear a word from you today. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated wherever you are. In 1952, Florence Chadwick, a young but experienced professional swimmer, attempted to swim from Catalina Island in the Pacific Ocean to the coastline of California over 40 kilometers away. Florence was already known as the first woman to swim the English Channel in both directions. And Randy Alcorn, in his book on heaven, describes this day that Florence attempted to swim. Says the weather was foggy and chilly. She could hardly see the boats accompanying her. Still, she swam for 15 hours. When she begged to be taken out of the water along the way, her mother, in a boat alongside, told her she was close and that she could make it. Finally, physically and emotionally exhausted, she stopped swimming and was pulled out. It wasn't until she was on the boat that she discovered the shore was less than half a mile away. At a news conference the next day, she said, all I could see was the fog. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. Sometimes in this life, it can seem like all we see and all we can see is the fog. We can see what's right in front of us, immediate and urgent, but not what's coming, not what's ahead. It can feel like we're not going to make it till the end, if we think of the end at all. And so we get weary, discouraged, anxious, or fearful. But one thing I hope that our journey through Revelation has done is to help us see the shore. As you've seen powerful scenes and images of where this world is headed, I hope you see the shore more clearly now, through the fog, the shore of Jesus Christ, really, and thus can take fresh courage and assurance and motivation and perseverance for today to keep on swimming. I invite you to open a Bible with me now to Revelation chapter 22, the final passage in Scripture where we will see the book of Revelation come full circle. Way back in chapter 1, the risen Jesus appeared to John, who is told, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. And here in chapter 22, Jesus again reveals himself and promises, I am indeed coming soon. And I hope you're longing for that day. I hope you're increasingly getting excited for it. But I totally get it if that has been or is a struggle to do, a struggle to look forward to that. 
J.I. Packer has offered a really helpful analysis for why we tend to neglect the return of Christ today. He says this, The hope of Christ's return thrilled the early Christians. It's referenced over 300 times in the New Testament, for instance. But to us, it's not so much exciting as embarrassing. He then gives four reasons why this is the case. He says, first, this is a time of reaction from a century and a half of intense prophetic study expressing a spirit of prayerless pessimism about the church and doom-watching detachment from the world. So this has given the whole topic a bad name. Second, this is a time of skepticism as to whether Christ personally and physically rose and ascended, and thus naturally, this naturally spawns dithering doubts as to whether we can hope to ever see him again. Third, this is a time of timidity in which Christians hesitate to challenge a this-worldly preoccupation lest the counter-accusation be provoked that Christians do not care about social and economic justice. So the fact that Christ will end this world and that the best part of the Christian hope lies beyond it gets played down. And fourth, this is a time of worldly-mindedness, at least among the prosperous Christians of the West. We think less and less about the better things that Christ will bring us at his reappearance because our thoughts are increasingly absorbed by the good things we enjoy here. This all makes sense for why we would downplay it today. But God help us. If we lose the return of Christ, I think we might as well lose all hope. Because... If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. The promise of Christ's return really should buoy us in the turbulent waters of today. It should mean the world to us now. We should keep our eyes fixed upon it. And so, we come to Revelation 22. And right after filling our minds with breathtaking images of a new heaven on a new earth, John, perhaps surprisingly, returns us to earth, to our present vantage point, since clearly all that we saw hasn't fully happened yet. So we're still swimming in a fog. So how do these passages, how do these future realities help us now? And I think this passage gives us six, yes, six distinct ways that Christ's return should impact us today. All six of them are a bit haphazardly intertwined and woven together throughout the passage. And so I'm going to give each point as we encounter them and then reinforce them as they come back up. Okay, all right. But begin reading in verse six. It says this, and he said to me, this is an angel speaking to John, and he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. That's Jesus speaking there through his angel, sending the message through him. But the first takeaway for us initially comes from verse 6. And that's just simply, Jesus is coming soon. Trust him. 
Jesus is coming soon. Trust and believing that he is coming soon is an expression of our trust, our belief. He's coming, so trust him. The angel speaking to John first assures him, likely referring to the whole book, these words are trustworthy and true, trustworthy or faithful. You can count on them. And true, this is not just a guess or a theory as to how the future will unfold. Even if it can be confusing to us at times, Revelation is dependable and accurate. It's true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angels to, angel to show his servants what must soon take place. You know the saying, I know not what the future holds, but I know who holds the future? As great and comforting and even true as that is, it's not entirely accurate. It would be better to say, I know not all the future holds. Because we've now seen the one who holds the future reveal some of that future to us. And he revealed this, it says, for our sake, for the sake of his servants, so that we know what must soon take place. Now, you may scoff a bit, thinking that just because something says it's true doesn't make it true. True enough. And if you're not a believer in Jesus, I actually don't expect you to understand this. But I would contend that we need to consider the source more than anything else here. Where is this coming from? Because if, if God is the creator and author of truth, all his words must be inherently true. Uh, you can choose to disregard that if you wish. But I want you to, to question which source of truth you are believing instead, and if that is more reliable than God. Because we all have a source for truth in our lives. For those of us who already believe, the Holy Spirit testifies to our hearts about this. And in verse 8, John talks about how, how uh, he is an eyewitness of these things and an ear witness even. He says, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. But really, there's a far better, reliable, even more reliable witness than the Apostle John. Because Revelation earlier called Jesus the faithful and true witness. Faithful and true witness. So it's no coincidence that as we come to the final chapter, it tells us twice that Jesus is testifying about these things. It says it in verse 16 and verse 20, and we'll get there. But Jesus is testifying about this. And as Jesus' followers, we know these to be the words of Jesus, so we can trust them implicitly because we trust him implicitly. But, that's not likely the main objection most of you have when you hear this. Sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. In verse 10, it says the time is near. And in verse 12 and verse 20, Jesus again says he's coming soon. And we go, but he hasn't come back yet. 
Like, soon seems to have come and gone. I mean, wasn't this book written like 1,900 years ago? So is Jesus wrong? If I told my wife, I'll be home soon, and then didn't arrive for 2,000 years. <laughs> and we may even think that the fact that he hasn't returned proves this false instead. A couple quick thoughts here. First of all, this feature, this is a normal, common feature of apocalyptic literature, which Revelation is, which almost always views the future as imminent, can happen at any time. And there's a reason for that. It's to make us, whoever is reading it or hearing it, to feel an urgency and a responsibility to always be prepared for whenever it happens. Scholars point out that in salvation history, in God's grand plan of redemption, the next eschatological event after Jesus' ascension into heaven and Pentecost of the Holy Spirit coming, is Christ's return. It's the very next step. Thus, whether it's two months or two millennia later, it's still near in God's plans as the next step. Secondly, Jesus often talked about returning to earth in his time, in his ministry on earth, seemingly in the nearish future. He said, I'm coming back soon. Paul, Peter, other biblical authors also talked about his return being imminent. John himself wrote earlier, children, it is the last hour. So the early church had to wrestle with this when they didn't see Jesus come back right away. In fact, there is a passage in our Bibles written to address this exact issue in 2 Peter 3. 2 Peter 3, I'll read it. You can turn there if you want to. But it says this, Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Doesn't look like he's coming. And Peter then says, They, they deliberately overlook how God has judged the world before in the past. And then he speaks to us. In verse 8 says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. In other words, it can happen anytime. But one thing we should also expect is for God to be extremely, unbelievably patient. God is infinitely more patient than we are. So he may take his time yet. But it's going to come. No matter how long he tarries, we can reaffirm our trust in him today. He's coming soon. But more than just an intellectual head trust, I believe our hearts need to be captured by this. 
And that's why the, the main command here, as it is throughout Revelation, is to behold. And God wants us to, to see this with our mind's eyes. Let it captivate our imaginations. And so, Jesus is coming soon. Behold him. Behold him. Jesus is coming soon. We should behold him, see him, even now. Verse 7, it says, And behold, I am coming soon. Behold, I am coming soon. The same command is repeated in verse 12. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me. And this was not just a command for believers who will actually be alive when Jesus returns. This is a command for Christians of every age to look and see that he is coming. When you hear the words, coming soon, what comes to your mind? Maybe coming soon to a theater near you. Or coming soon to Netflix. Or maybe you picture a video game or a book that's set to be released soon. Actually, a, a trailer for a, a movie or a show or whatever is a decent parallel for this. You know that the two-minute or so previews that give you a tease that show clips from upcoming releases? Why do they show trailers? I said just to get the word out. It's, it's to build up your anticipation by giving you a taste of what's coming. To, they want you getting excited so that you share your excitement with others. And likewise, Jesus wants you getting more and more excited about his coming return to earth. And he wants you sharing your excitement with others to get the word out. And so he gives us glimpses, tastes through his word of what's going to happen. So for example, we see a scene, just a quick scene of, of a slain yet living lamb on heaven's throne opening scrolls. We see a, a shot of, of Jesus riding on a white horse as a heavenly warrior. We see a, a clip of him as a bridegroom watching his bride walk down the aisle. We see a glimpse of him as a judge bringing eternal justice against evil. And we see him sitting on an earthly throne as king, abundantly blessing his people, wiping their tears away, giving them living water to drink. And then finally we see him shining so brilliantly as the only light the holy city will ever need. And then the trailer wraps up with the words, Jesus, coming soon. And you might hear a, a voiceover, Behold, I am coming soon. So do you see it? Can you see? Can you picture it happening? Does it, does it stir your heart? No, no, not all the images we saw in Revelation are literal, but they all point to a true, greater reality. And Jesus is truly, literally, victoriously, mightily, lovingly, gloriously coming soon. It's not the only message Jesus has his angel deliver in verse 7, though. It says, Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Now, there's a direct implication for us. Like, if he's coming soon, 
We ought to do this. Jesus is coming soon. Obey him. If Jesus is coming soon, we should make sure to keep his word and obey him. But the obligation isn't stressed as much as the blessing is here. It's a beatitude. Really. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. This is a, a promise that God will bless us if we keep the words recorded here. Now, to keep words is to obey words, to follow words, to do what they say to do. Now, notice, this does not say, as some bumper stickers or memes might say, Jesus is coming, look busy. Doesn't say that. As if we were kids who were told to clean our rooms, but got distracted by playing, and when we hear our parent approaching, we, we scramble to act as if we were working. No. Obviously, if Jesus has all-seeing, fiery eyes, we cannot trick him with pretense. We should not look or appear busy for Jesus, but we should be faithful in keeping his commands. As Jesus said in Luke 12, 37, blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Not physically awake, spiritually awake and active. So what should we obey? The main commands in Revelation, like I said earlier, is to behold, to fix our eyes on Christ. But other key themes we've seen include having endurance when people oppose your faith, the, all the language about conquering and overcoming and being victorious speaks to endurance. We also need to repent of, of lukewarm living or resist temptations to compromise. Like there's vast blessing waiting for us in his words. In keeping them, there's great reward, as Psalm 19 says. Great reward. I think one way that you can examine yourself today is to ask, if Jesus were to walk physically into my home today, is there anything that I would immediately cease doing because I know I'm being unfaithful? Or, alternatively, if you knew Jesus was going to return next Sunday at this time, what would you do in the seven days or 168 hours leading up to that moment? What would you change? Ask the Lord to show you where you are or are not being faithful, where you are or are not obeying, where you can grow. And then out of love for him and in response to what he has done first, keep his word. Another way we can keep the words of Revelation is to worship the Lord. To worship him. That's been a, a massive theme throughout the book. And it continues here at the end as well. Look at verse 8. It says, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. 
I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers the prophets and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And here we see this truth. Jesus is coming soon. Worship him. Worship him. Worship God, really. The Father, Spirit, Son. After all, Jesus is coming back soon. But he said to me, you must not do that. Like, I don't know how John didn't learn this lesson when he did this like three chapters ago. Did the exact same thing. But anyway, John lets himself stand as an example of what not to do. And the main lesson stays the same. There is only one who is worthy of worship. Worship God. So, don't worship an emperor or an empire or a dragon an antichrist, Babylon, this world's powers. Don't worship good guys either, such as saints or apostles, hip preachers, like even angels, glorious angels. Like no one else is worthy of your admiration or exaltation or heart's praise. Worship God. Eternity is going to revolve around the worship of the Lamb. Might as well start now. You may wonder, well, what does worship have to do with Christ's return? Graham Goldsworthy answers this well. He says, The children of the kingdom eagerly await its appearing. We long to see our Lord known no more as the humiliated Jesus of the gospel, but as the Lord of glory. We shall be restless until the holy name of our God and Savior is vindicated, every tongue stopped, and every knee made to bow in acknowledgement of him. And that's why we worship him now. Continue reading, and we're going to see many of the same themes we've discussed come up again. In verse 10, it says, And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. So John is told to not seal up this prophecy, which would keep it secret or inaccessible. Why? Because believers need to hear these truths now. We need them now. We need to behold Jesus and learn to trust Jesus and obey Jesus and worship Jesus now. The time is near. Verse 11. Let the evildoer still do evil and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Now this might get you to cock your eyebrows a bit. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy. What? Like, why would we want to let evil continue? Shouldn't we try to reach evildoers to get it to stop? I mean, the second part of the verse is easy enough to understand. Like, let the righteous still do right and the holy still be holy. This is obeying Jesus. If God has made you righteous, live righteously. Don't compromise. Keep it up. If God has made you holy, setting you apart, live holy lives, no matter how dark it gets. But that first part's perplexing. What does it mean? Well, this is actually an echo of when the prophet Daniel is told to seal up his prophecy. And he's told then, many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly. 
In essence, this is saying that God is sovereign and that he will bring about his plans regardless of how good some people will be or how wicked others will be. Like the message paraphrases, let evildoers do their worst and the dirty-minded go all out in pollution. In the end, none of that's going to stop Jesus from coming back. Therefore, everyone who hears should think very carefully about how they're living today. Verse 12 repeats, Behold, I am coming soon. Behold, look, see this. I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. If you're living in rebellion to Jesus, be forewarned today. He will repay us all. On the other hand, this is really meant to be an encouragement to believers, to, to beleaguered believers. Recompense is a picture of Jesus having something like a payroll with ready-to-hand-out paychecks. And as was the case when we looked at Judgment Day in chapter 20, this has nothing to do with our salvation or being saved by what we do. We are all judged based on works, and those in Christ are saved by grace. But there is still a clear biblical teaching that believers will be rewarded in eternity. It's based on what we do, but even then, it's because of grace. He doesn't need to reward us or pay us back. And yet he will. And so, let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. How can we know this? Because of who is making the promises. Verse 13. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Our revelation opened up by calling God Alpha and Omega, Jesus the first and the last, but this is the first and last time. All three of these titles are used in the same place. They all basically have the same meaning, but they're stacked together to emphasize it. To emphasize this, that, that Jesus has an all-embracing power over all of world's history. He was in control at the beginning, and he will be in control at the end, and over everything in between. Everything finds its source in Christ and will find its destination in Christ. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He's inescapable. And what does this lead you to do? Trust him? Obey him? Worship him? Yeah. Let's keep going, though. Verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gate. That's a beautiful picture. Especially after seeing the holy city and its pearly gates and the tree of life in recent chapters. There is a way that we can have the right, like a, a passport or a license 
to access them. How? Because we need clean robes. Here it says we are blessed if we wash our robes or clothes. By the way, this is the seventh of seven Beatitudes in Revelation. And if you took this verse by itself, it might sound like we can do this ourselves. Right? Just, just find a, a spiritual washing machine, throw your, your outfit in, run a cycle, and voila. But it's not that simple. Because our clothes have a lot of dirt on them. Stains that don't just rub out. You can't just scrub yourself clean by acting like you won't get dirty anymore. You'd be deluding yourself. Besides, the stains are already there. So what can we do? How do we get our robes washed? There's only one place to do it. In the river that you find at the foot of the cross. Early in Revelation in chapter 7, it talked about those with washed robes in heaven. So these people... And it says also there how they got them clean. It says they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The only one thing we can do is to bring our clothes to Jesus. He washes us clean. Here's the big idea. Jesus is coming soon. Come to him. Jesus is coming back to us soon. And in the meantime, his invitation for us is to come to him. Now that you know the ability to wash one's robes depends on Jesus, look at verse 14 again. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Like if you come to Jesus, this is saying you get all the, the mind-blowing blessings that we've seen lately. And that's really because if you come to Jesus, you get Jesus. Like, blessed are those. Jesus wants to, to bless you forever. So I hope you run. Don't walk to him today. Find his forgiveness, his mercy, his cleansing, and then eternal blessings beyond belief. Life. Come to him. The, the beauty of Jesus is really what should attract us to him. However, seeing the alternative doesn't hurt either. In verse 15 says, outside, so outside the city are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Again, a list like this might worry you because you may see yourself reflected in it. I know I do. And if you haven't let Jesus wash you from these things, you should be alarmed. You should be. But again, this was not meant to scare believers into feeling insecure. This reassures us that nothing evil will ever be allowed to harm our eternity. Nothing evil can harm the life that Jesus gives. Outside are the dogs. Now, dogs were not considered man's best friend in John's day. They were mostly dirty, wild, scavenging strays who lived outside the city. 
To say that the people on this list will be like dogs living outside the holy city does not mean that their eternal home is going to be in some heavenly suburb. This refers to hell, which is removed from the new creation, removed from the holy city to protect the new creation from harm. It can never fall again. And if this verse does worry you, your main takeaway should be, it doesn't need to be this way for you. It doesn't need to be. Why not? Because Jesus came to you first, enabling you to come to him. Verse 16 says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Now that's an interesting title he gives, the, the root and descendant of David, David the shepherd king. Root obviously implies that David came from him. But descendant, also translated branch, implies that he came from David. So catch it. He came before and after David. Again, he's the first and the last. But this also implies some other things here. Root of David shows how great he is. Like Jesus is greater than David. He's even the creator of David and us all. And descendant of David is an allusion to his royal heritage and lineage. Jesus is the direct descendant of David, the heir to the throne. He's also the Davidic Messiah, the promised Savior who would come from David's line. In other words, he's the Savior the world needs. He's the Savior you and I need. And the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. This is also... It pointing to his identity as Messiah. Numbers 24 prophesied that a star shall come out of Jacob. But what does this mean? I am the bright morning star. Clearly, Jesus is not literally a star, like a, a planet, like Venus in the morning sky. This is imagery. As Bob Goodsward explains, the morning star often appears between 2 and 3 at night when the darkness is complete and the faintest sign of morning is not yet visible. So small that it threatens to vanish. The star seems unable to vanquish the overpowering darkness. Yet, when you see the morning star, you know that the night has been defeated. For the morning star pulls the morning in behind it just as certainly as Jesus pulls the kingdom in behind him. Isn't that amazing? Like when we see Jesus, when we behold him, even if he doesn't seem all that powerful to us right now, when we see glimpses of who Jesus is now, we can rest assured that the night is defeated. And therefore, trust him. Worship him for who he is. And come to him. 
He's the Savior you need. Hear the invitation, verse 17. The Spirit and the Bride say, come. Now, I always read those as addressed to Jesus, as though both the Holy Spirit and the Bride, us on earth, are asking him to return. And that could be the case. But it's far more likely, after having studied this, that this is addressed to you and me. In light of who Jesus is as Savior, in light of your filthy robes, and in light of Jesus coming, God invites us to come to him in incredible grace, which is why this then follows. The Spirit and the Bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Do you need Jesus? You want Jesus, then come to him. Is your soul thirsty? Do you desire life that is truly life? Let everyone, let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Again, the water of life is without cost for us because it wasn't without cost for Jesus. Do you hear the the Holy Spirit, the Spirit and the Bride, do you hear the Holy Spirit speak this to your heart today? Come. You hear God's heart for you in that. You hear his longing that you would come. The bride also, the the glorified future church, speaks to us from heaven, from the future. Come. We who hear this now, the current church, should echo this to all who will hear. Come. As Isaiah said long before, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. I think it's any coincidence that Jesus now identifies as David's root and branch. Now, this is another glorious promise for you. If you will only come, I hope you hear him today. As Revelation comes to an end, John leaves a sober warning against tampering. Look at verse 18. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Now, I doubt any of you would attempt this, but just in case you ever do feel the urge, don't do it. (laughs) This basically says... If you add, God will add something to you. And if you take away or subtract, God will subtract from you. And these are such strong warnings because these are such important words. They're Jesus' words. The message for us may well be, take God's word seriously. Don't mess with it. Obey it. Don't pick and choose which parts matter to you. It all matters. And God will hold you accountable to what you do with what he says to you.
with the gravity of the stakes ringing in our ears, the book and the whole Bible ends simply and also wonderfully. Jesus speaks up again, testifying again. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Take it to the bank. And not just I'm coming, but surely I am coming. Praise the Lord. And what, what relief this can give our souls. What peace this can speak to our hearts. No matter how dark this life gets, the morning star is going to shine. We can praise him for this, that he is coming soon. We should also do one more thing. Jesus is coming. Pray to him. Pray to him. This is what John does so fittingly as he ponders Jesus coming back. He prays to him. Essentially, in verse 20, John adds his own come to the choruses of come. It says, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Matt Chandler comes, you can practically hear his broken breathlessness. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Maranatha. Don't you long for your faith to turn to sight? Don't you long to be rid of the daily struggle we have in this sinful world? Don't you long to be free forever from the sting and stench of death? Don't you long for the, the slain lamb to be revealed as the Lion of Judah? Don't you long for the, the King of Kings and, and Lord of Lords to, to come to earth, to set all our horrific wrongs to right and to reign over us all? Don't you long to behold the one for whom you were made? If so, add your voice the prayers constantly going up from God's people here on earth. Amen. I could agree with this. Let it happen, God. May it be so. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And in the meantime, here's a perfect prayer for us to sustain us until then. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. We don't only need Jesus to come back to fix everything. We need him now. We need him now with us, giving us his grace, his all-sufficient grace to live each day, to persevere, to believe, to live out his word, to remain faithful until the end. And so, while we wait, for our Lord and Savior to come roaring in like a lion. We can pray for the grace that he secured for us as the Lamb. His grace, all his blessings that we do not deserve, 
are already ours in Christ. And he promised when he left earth first that he would be with us always, even to the end of the age, which means that his grace is with us now. These, these are prayers that are certain to be answered. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. May we echo these daily. I follow a guy on Twitter named Isaac Adams who has a fun little habit going every single day. Without fail, he posts the same simple tweet day after day after day. And it says, Christian, we're one day closer to heaven. Said it again today. Say it again tomorrow. Christian, we are one day closer to heaven. Whew. I also heard a quote similar from John Piper recently that resonated with me. He said, your life is not speeding away. Your life is fast approaching. Brothers and sisters, every day this gets closer. Even as our earthly lives decay, our true life, capital L, life, is rapidly approaching because Jesus is rapidly approaching. Remember what Revelation has told us, shown us over and over. Things are not as they seem. There is more, way more than meets the eye. So, can you see the shore? Because the time is near. Surely, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Oh, Lord, may it be so. We're in a, a broken mess down here. But we hold on to the hope of a new creation where you will reign, where you will set all wrongs right, where you will be with us as our God, as our light, and we will see your face. How we long for that day. So come, Lord Jesus. Amen.